We stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Good morning to everyone. It's good to be back with you after being with Salem Mennonite. Last week it was good to be with them, but I didn't see anything by their worship leader that compared to what we saw this morning. <laughs> still trying. <laughs> so yeah, I think that was, I don't know if that was starting to become a wrap, but I think it was getting close to it. So I, I'm looking forward to more as the month of May uh, unfolds. <laughs> This is graduation weekend, so all over the country, students are being honored for completing the requirements of their degree program. We actually have a few students of our own. We have a few people not here who are at their children's graduations. This ceremony is often called commencement, right? So in one sense, commencement is the end of something, right? It's the end of a four or five year period of time for a student. But of course, we know the word commence means to begin, to start. So the commencement is both an ending and a beginning. One chapter of a student's life ends and another chapter begins. And what often happens too is what we have a commencement address where someone stands up and gives a charge to the students to go out into the world and do what they've been trained to do. Our passage for today is, is in many ways like, uh, like, a, like a, a, a college announcement, a college commencement, because it contains both an ending and a beginning. Jesus has poured three years of his life into his disciples that are gathered on a mountain in Galilee. Right? They've done this three-year intensive discipleship program, which includes teaching instructions, including that a long block of teaching we just finished up called the Sermon on the Mount. They got to watch Jesus heal and, and teach and preach and uh, do all this stuff. And they even got to do kind of their own mini internship where about halfway through the book, Jesus actually sends the disciples out to do what he did before they come back. So this intense training period is coming to a close and Jesus is going to now ascend back to the Father, right? So one thing is coming to an end, but another chapter of the disciples' life is about to begin, and Jesus is going to give a kind of commencement speech, a charge. It's a short one, it's a famous one, it's powerful. These disciples are to now go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. In short, they're to multiply themselves. They're to reproduce themselves. They're to go out into the world and do what Jesus has been doing with them for the last three years, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, bring people into this new community of faith through baptism, and to make and train them as disciples, right? It's, audacious, it's an audacious charge, and these guys actually did it. 
I think about it, these guys up on this mountain in Galilee, they've got, essentially, they've got no army. I doubt they have very much money. They don't have any political party. And yet somehow this group of disciples is able to go out and essentially turn the world upside down. Right? It's why you're sitting here today. Because somebody left a mountain in Galilee and passed on a message to someone else who passed on a message to someone else. And that is why we're here today. Because someone took the Great Commission seriously. As Eugene Peterson says, Jesus, it must be remembered, restricted nine-tenths of his ministry to 12 Jews because it was the only way to reach all Americans. It worked. And the same charge, the same mandate that Jesus gave these disciples on a mountain in Galilee now comes down to those of us who profess ourselves as followers of Jesus, as disciples, to go and make disciples. And so what I want to do during this Easter season, remember we've still, we're in a, we forget, Easter isn't just one day, it's a season. We've still got the white on the cross. We've got this period of time between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost. And what I want to do during this time of period is talk about this famous commission that Jesus gives us. And we're going to start today by talking about the authority behind the commission. And we're going to take a few weeks to go through this, so we'll get to the next part. But I want to start with the authority behind the commission. Two weeks ago, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, when Jesus finishes up preaching, the people were amazed. Do you remember why they were amazed? Because Jesus taught as one with authority. We talked about others. Something different about Jesus, the teacher, than any other teacher they'd ever encountered. There was this integrity to him. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He lived by his teaching. There was integrity. So we're now, it's interesting, because now we're on the, the other side of resurrection, right? Jesus has been uh, crucified. He's been buried. He's raised from the dead. And here we are again on a mountain in Galilee, right? It sounds like a lot like where we were in the Sermon on the Mount. This time, the disciples see Jesus, and they worship him. So that probably doesn't surprise most of us here today that this guy walks up, he's a guy raised from the dead, and people begin to worship him. But just think about how surprising this would have been for these Jewish men and, and possibly women up there. Because as a Jew, they would have learned since they were just little boys that the one thing you don't do as a Jew is worship another person. Because as a Jew, you don't worship anything, no object, no person, nothing except for God alone, Yahweh. Imagine your son or daughter, born and bred in the Buckeye State, leaves home, moves out of state, comes back to visit, and is wearing a Michigan Wolverines jersey. This is not how I raised you. Son, daughter, we don't say that name out loud in this house. And here you come back wearing a uniform. I raised you better than that. No wonder we read that some worshipped and doubted. I'm imagining that something in these men is telling them, is screaming at them, something's not right about worshipping a man, and yet I'm compelled to do it. I'm doing it, and yet I have some doubts at the same time, because that's not who we are. We are monotheists. We profess that there is one God and one God alone, and that God is not a man. Yet they are 
up on a mountain in Galilee worshiping the risen Jesus. Think about all, think about this environment up on this mountain in Galilee. It's this mixture of awe and fear and doubt and bewilderment. I, I imagine it's just a completely electric environment up on that mountain. As dead guys come back to life, doesn't happen every day, whom they're worshiping, very, very strange for the Jewish people, and some doubt. And into this confusion and doubt and bewilderment, Jesus speaks a commissioning. He tells them what to do next. He gives them a purpose. Here's what you're going to do next. Think about how powerful it is. Uh, maybe you've had this experience where someone has come up to you and spoken purpose into your life. Maybe you've had the experience of someone come up, coming up to you and, and amidst maybe your own doubts or your hesitations or your confusion about your life, they say, I believe in you and you have a purpose. That's powerful. Because we are as humans wired to crave purpose. We can endure an incredible amount of hardship and trials, but the one thing it seems that people cannot endure is to not have a purpose. We just, we just can't do it as people. We have to have a purpose. We have to have some reason that we wake up in the morning. Maybe some of you remember what a strange feeling it was when you retired. Uh, you know, 40, 50 years of your life, you had a pretty clear purpose. You had something to do when you woke up, and there was this change. You might not have always loved your job, but you had a purpose every day, and now maybe I, you feel a little bit adrift. Or maybe some of you spent decades raising children, and all of a sudden, they're gone. I'm realizing it's going very fast. And you ask, what's next? What's my purpose now? Jesus has poured three years into these 11 guys. They've hung out with Jesus. They've watched him work. They've been trained by Jesus. They had the, the best internship you could possibly imagine. They had three years with the Son of God. And they're not the same. They've been changed. They've been transformed. They can't go back to their old lives. You know you've encountered the real Jesus when you realize that you cannot go back to your old life. You are not the same person if you've had a legitimate encounter with the risen Lord. Jesus doesn't send us back to our old lives. Listen, he doesn't send us back into a life of quiet pietism. They've been changed. They're not the same people. They can't go back to their old life. They have to be, they've been formed so that they can be sent out. Right? We didn't spend six months studying the Sermon on the Mount so we could be a little bit better Christians, so that we could be a little bit more pious Christians. No, Jesus invests in us so that he can send us out on mission. And we'll talk more as we go through this series. We'll talk more about what that actually looks at. But it doesn't matter what mission you've been sent out on if you don't know uh, what's behind that mission. Okay? You've got to know that there's an authority behind that mission. But let's think about the importance of a mission statement. You know what you, uh, if you, say you don't have a mission, you don't have a purpose, and you're just kind of wandering around. Guess what you will hit every time if you aim at nothing? You'll, you'll hit nothing. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons you guys and the leadership team and, and the communities have been hard at work crafting a mission statement, Right? Does anybody, we're just releasing this. Anybody know what that mission statement is? 
a welcoming community nurturing followers of Jesus. When we put out this statement, we're saying the reason why we exist in Northeast Ohio is to invite new people to follow Jesus and to together as a community nurture that faith, nurture their faith as we nurture our own faith, as we grow up into the maturity of Jesus Christ. And the thing about a mission statement is it's very helpful. It gives you something to aim at, and it can be kind of scary. Why is a mission statement scary? Because if, if you don't have a mission statement, well, then you're like, how are we doing our mission statement? Well, we're doing fine because we have no mission statement, <laughs> right? But once you get a mission statement, you hold up your mission statement, a welcoming community, nurturing followers of Jesus, and you hold up the reality and you see a gap. And that's okay. There's always going to be a gap. But we see that contrast. Are we as a congregation making new disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we growing as disciples of Jesus Christ ourselves? Are we kind of okay where things are at? How are we doing? Let's be honest. I, am I, as a preacher, nurturing disciples of Jesus Christ? I'm not always sure. I think it's really easy to get busy and just kind of keep things running here in the congregation and forget that Jesus has given me a call to go out and to make new disciples of Jesus Christ. Right, so we see a gap, and that's okay. And I don't say that to make us feel guilty, but we notice a gap. We've got a mission statement, and we know in reality we're probably not doing it, and that's okay. But our call is to narrow that gap between God's vision and the reality of our congregation. And it's comforting to me to know the disciples still have doubts. <laughs> All this training, the best internship in the history of the world, in front of the risen Jesus, and some are doubting. That should give us a little bit of solace, right? We're going to have doubts. <laughs> We're going to struggle. And yet, they accept the charge, they accept the mission, and they go out and do it. So we typically start, when we come to the Great Commission, if you know it, if you've memorized it, typically we start with, go and make disciples. And, and understandably, that, that, that mission statement has been so powerful throughout the history of the church. But we've got to look at what's behind the statement. We're not going to be able to go and live out that mission, that purpose, unless we understand what's behind it. Here's what's behind it, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore. Okay? That therefore is really important. What do you do when you see a therefore? You look back, right? You ask, what is the therefore Therefore, it's there to point us back to the claim that Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. Just stop and think about this for a second, this claim. All authority on heaven and earth. Like not some authority over some place, but Jesus' claim is all authority over every last square inch of this earth and this universe is mine. That's nuts. That is crazy. We've got to understand what is behind the Great Commission because there's some implications to it. Two things here I want to point out. One, it means that Jesus is really serious about us living out this commission. And two, he gives us the power to live out this commission. Let's start with his expectation that we live out this commission. If it is true that Jesus is, has authority over all of heaven and earth, guess who's included in that? I am. Thank you, Pat. I am. 
There's nowhere that his authority doesn't stretch out, which means that you and I fall under that authority, which in our culture is crazy. Because where is almost every message of our culture tell you authority lies? Right here. You are an authority. Nobody tells you or I what to believe or what to do. Which means that ultimate authority, according to our culture, lies in here. And it means that to to answer the most basic questions of life, I'm going to have to go back to myself. What is my purpose? Well, I've got to find my purpose here. What am I here on earth to do? I've got to look inside. How do I act? What are the ethical guidelines? Well, I've got to sort that out. How do I define what success is? Well, I've got to sort that out. What is the good life? What is the flourishing life? What do I do with my money? Everything I have, I go back to myself and ask, what do I do? I have the authority according to my culture. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you don't have that authority. I have that authority. Do you you believe that? Do we believe that? I don't know if we do. I don't know if we really do. I don't know if we really know what we're saying when we profess Jesus as Lord. I'm not sure we do. I think most of us would say, yeah, Jesus has authority over my life. Um, All of it? Let's think of a couple examples. Often I hear Christians talk about how we offer back a portion of our money, 10% or whatever, to God. God gets to do with that. What do you want? And then who has authority over the other 90%? I guess I do. Do I have like some bank account that's outside the authority of God? Right? Do you have a bank account that's somehow outside of heaven and earth? I don't. Tell me, you can tell me where that bank is. I don't know where that bank exists. Think about our time. Does Jesus have authority over one hour, five minutes, ten minutes, a couple hours? Or does he have authority over all of our week? See, I think sometimes we sit down with Jesus more like we would like a counselor and say, all right, Jesus, how about this? Uh, I'll give you Sunday morning. I'll give you Wednesday every other week. I'll take the rest of the days. I'll throw in some gas money for you, Jesus. Let's call it good. We all do it. We all partition our lives and say, this is what I have authority of, and this is what Jesus has authority of. But that's not what Jesus claims. What authority does Jesus claim? All. All. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. All. All is in all. All is in every last square inch of heaven and earth. Yesterday was the coronation of Charles III, which I'm guessing some of you might have watched or followed. He was crowned as king. He became the monarch and head of state of 14 sovereign countries. Quite a, quite a claim there. Charles had actually officially become king when his mother Elizabeth had died on September 8th, but yesterday his enthronement was fully established. He officially ascended to the throne that was rightfully his. Jesus, this helps us get our mind around what's happening in this post-resurrection. Jesus was enthroned over all creation at his resurrection. It was at his resurrection where the Son of God was vindicated. All authority in heaven and earth was given to Jesus following his resurrection. And now, and we're going to get to it in a few weeks, Jesus is going to ascend to the throne. Sometimes we think about the ascension as like, oh, Jesus disappeared. That's what I've usually thought, like, oh, he went into thin air. I think what's happening is Jesus is ascending the throne. 
He's ascending his rightful throne, which is where? At the right hand of the Father. Right? That's why we call it the ascension. And if you watch the coronation or the coverage of the coronation, you probably would have seen protesters holding up signs that said what? Not my king. Not my king. One of the amazing things about the lordship of Jesus Christ, who has authority over all of heaven and earth, is not just like ceremonial authority like King Charles, but all authority, he doesn't force us to come under that authority. Jesus gives us total freedom to say, not my king, not my king. And I think understandably, in light of abuses of authority and power, sometimes this kind of language of authority makes us nervous. And and in light of the way power is so often abused in our culture, that is understandable. But you've got to understand, Jesus' lordship operates different than any other lordship. He never forces anyone to come under his lordship. I feel like, I, this, is a weird, this is a weird kind of like apologetic, but I feel like I'm going to stand up here all the time and say, you don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to follow Jesus because you have a Mennonite name. You don't have to follow Jesus because you grew up in the church. You don't have to follow Jesus because you live in the United States. You have total freedom not to follow Jesus, which means you can follow Jesus. You've got to opt in. You can't opt in because you have a name, a last name, or because you grew up in a certain church. You're going to have to opt in. Jesus gives you total freedom to opt in or to opt out. He doesn't operate like other lords and kings. He gave his very life so that we might enter into his kingdom. And there's other options out there. There's other lords, there's other masters we can look to as authority. But here's what I'm getting, here's what I'm learning as I get older. Those masters are pretty terrible masters, including myself. See, the older I get, the more convinced I am that Jesus actually understands how life works better than I do. That Jesus, shockingly, is smarter than I am. It's why we spent six months on the Sermon on the Mount, because I think Jesus knows what leads to a flourishing life better than you and I do. And it's so often we come to that sermon and we say, nah, not for me. Jesus is so much better of a Lord because he is smarter than me. He is so much more gracious and loving to me. You know who can be a tyrant of a master? Myself. You know who often never lives up to the, the standards of the master? My own master. You know which master is hard to forgive me? My own master. You know what master's burden is really heavy? My own master. Jesus is not like that. His lordship is not like that. Thank goodness Jesus is not a tyrant master like I so often am to myself. At some point, you're going to have to decide who are you going to give ultimate authority of your life to. Jesus is making this stunning claim, which you can take or reject. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to you, and you can stand up and say, not my king. You have total freedom to do that. You are not going to be forced in by a military or a monarch into this kingdom. You have total freedom to decide if you enter into this kingdom or not. But if you do, which I encourage you to, if you confess Jesus as your Lord, if you become a disciple of Jesus, 
You have given authority of your life away, and you got work to do. You got good work. You got purpose. You got mission. You got mission to proclaim the good news that this kingdom is open to all. I don't think I can enter into King Charles' kingdom. But this kingdom is open to all. So the first implication of Jesus' authority. Remember, we're looking at Jesus is going to give us a mandate, but he's going to tell us what's behind that mandate, and that is Jesus' authority. He has authority of us, over us, and if that's true, we got marching orders to do. But here's the second implication that we've got to get if we're going to understand the Great Commission. There's a power behind this commission. Dallas Willard, he taught philosophy at USC for many years, uh, wrote extensively about Christian spirituality and discipleship. Brilliant author. I encourage you to read anything of his. Um, He writes about when he was a child in southern Missouri, which is where I grew up, uh, and, and he remembers when the Rural Electrification Administration extended the power lines so that his farm and these households around him now, electricity now became available to them. And when those lines came to his town, uh, a different way of life was possible, what he calls the kingdom of electricity. All kinds of things were now possible that weren't possible before in terms of how you could sow, in terms of how you ran your farm, in terms of how you refrigerated your food, in terms of how you did your laundry and your work and your leisure and your food preparation, it all could be changed by tapping into this power that had come near. But the people still had to believe it was real. They had to believe that this power had come close to them in which they could tap into. And Willard said some chose not to. They continued without this power. But some decided to enter into the kingdom of electricity to make use, to tap into this power that was available to them, this power to improve their lives. See, we've got to understand that Jesus does not just send us out into mission totally reliant on our own power. If we do, we are in trouble. There's a new power available. There's a power called the kingdom of God, and you can plug into it. You go out, you and I will go out into mission, we go out into mission plugged into a new power and backed by a new authority. And that's really important because if we don't start there, we're going to mix, we're going to mix up who's, who's got the authority in this commission. Let me tell you a story about my kids, which may sound like a story like, about your kids. I have four kids, and probably like most siblings, they don't love being told what to do by their sibling. Any other, anybody else have kids that didn't love that? It doesn't go over super well when one of my children decides to hold authority over the other child. And the real question is, you know, when one of my kids says to the other to do something, by whose authority? They wouldn't put it that way, but that's essentially what they're saying. By whose authority are you telling me what to do? Because if it's their own authority, you can imagine that doesn't go very far with their sibling. (laughs) But if, but if, it's, if the authority, if the instruction behind that is from mom or dad, hopefully it changes a little bit. Maybe not always, sometimes. But there's an authority behind that instruction. It's not their own authority. It's the, it's the parent's authority. And that matters. See, if there's no authority behind the Great Commission, you and I, we're going out on our own and we're saying, all right, here we go. Ah, I'm going to give it my best shot and give you this pitch. 
I'm going to be super anxious because as I go out on mission, I'm going to think it all relies on me. Uh, Becky Pippert tells this story in a book, uh, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And she says, um, she said she was so anxious about being a witness to Jesus Christ. And she, she described her witnessing as offending people for Jesus' sake. Like anybody else ever felt like that? You're, you're going out and witnessing and it feels like you're offending people for Jesus' sake. So she had gotten this impression that, that being a witness to Jesus meant trapping some unsuspecting person uh, and to listen to a speech about Jesus. And she writes this. The result was that I would put off witnessing as long as possible. Whenever the guilt became too great to bear, I overpowered the nearest non-Christian with a non-spot, non-stop running monologue and then dashed away thinking, whew, well, I did it. It's spring, and hopefully the guilt won't overcome me again until winter. I totally resonate with this description <laughs> of feeling like, oh, I need to do something. I'm feeling guilty. I'm supposed to talk about Jesus. I'm going to like, do this really fast, and then I'm going to get out of here. I think we're often anxious about talking about Jesus because we forget what's behind us. If we accept the commission of Jesus Christ, what goes behind us is Jesus Christ's. Like if you, don't, if you and I don't know the power that's behind us, we're going to be anxious witnesses. If we know the power that's behind us, we're going to have a quiet confidence. Remember, right before this great commission, some of these guys are doubting. And into that doubt, Jesus speaks and says, this isn't about you, this is about me. What is evangelism? At its most basic, I think evangelism is introducing one person to another. That other person just happens to be Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, one, we've got to know Jesus Christ, but we've got to have confidence in Jesus Christ. If evangelism is about introducing someone to me, to my vision, to my wisdom, I don't have much confidence in that. But if backing me up is Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, who, has, who I believe has transformed my life, I've got a story to tell. I can tell that person, man, I was not the same person before I met Jesus. I want to tell you about the things in my life that have changed because of Jesus. I want to tell you about the purpose that's been given to my life because of Jesus. I want to tell you about the joy that I have in following Jesus now and the joy that I await in the kingdom to come. See, knowing who is behind us, we cannot be arrogant. Why can we not be arrogant as Christians? Because it's not our power, it's not our authority. We're not trumpeting ourselves. We cannot, as Christians, be arrogant. But we also can't be timid. Because guess what? What's the power behind us? It's not us. It's Jesus. That's where we got to start. Right? As, we, as we turn now to kind of fleshing out, what does that mean to go out and make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded? We're going to get to that, but we've got to start with the backing of authority. It's Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that Jesus is Lord of over all, we're not going to really think that Jesus has work for us to do. We're not going to be at a place as a congregation where we're going to be nurturing followers of Jesus. But we also have to understand the authority that is behind that mandate. It's Jesus Christ. And that is what enables us to go forward. Let's pray. 
God, as we listen to these words that have rung through the ages, these words that have inspired so many to go out far and near to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the message that there is a different way of living, that there's a new power that's here, there's a new kingdom to step into. I thank you, Lord, that that message has come to each person here. For those who who have given their life to the lordship of Jesus and stepped into this kingdom, And Lord, now, for those of us who have stepped into the kingdom of God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to go out on mission. We don't even always know exactly what that means, Lord, but we trust that you have work for us to do, you have mission for us to do, you have purpose for us to do as individuals and as a congregation, Lord, and we want to be faithful to that, and we want to go out with your power. So I ask, Lord, that your power be behind each of us in our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.